0: Father in heaven, as we open your word, we ask for a special blessing from heaven. Father, we do not take for granted that we have the scriptures. We do not take for granted, Lord, that we have an opportunity to know you intimately and deeply. And so, Father, we pray that this evening that you'd remove all distractions. Father, your word would speak to our hearts, that you'd change them even. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If any of you have any questions, by the way, of what I just spoke about, please come and see me after. But for now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. The sermon title for this evening is The Seeds of Babylon. Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. Listen to what it says in verse 8. Genesis ten eight and Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And this was the beginning of his kingdom, Babel and Erech and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar. So Nimrod was essentially the king or the leader of the kingdom of Babel. Go to chapter 11 verse 1 and the whole earth was of how many languages one language and of one speech and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of shinar and they dwelt there and they said one to another go to let us make brick and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar and they said go to let us build us a city and a tower Whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. This tower, we're told, was built because they did not believe the promise of the Lord that He would not again send a flood as He had in the previous chapters of Genesis. They believed that they could, in fact, Construct a tower that reached beyond the levels of water that we saw in Genesis chapter 6 and in Genesis chapter 7. But notice what really is the crux of this Babylonian mindset. Look at verse 4. Let us make a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Babylon can essentially be summed up in these two characteristics. The one we see in verse 4 and the one we see in verse 1. The first thing that summarized Babylon was a particular unity. They were unified in language, they were unified in thought, they were unified in objective. And as we see in verse 4, the other thing, or the thing that maybe perhaps actually united them was in fact that they had this thing about them, let us make us a name. Now, did they have a name already? Yes, they were the children of God. Or at least that's how they started off before they simply became known as the children of Cain and then later on the children of Nimrod. They had a name, but they wanted to build on their own name. And we see later on from verse 5 and onwards that God simply couldn't allow Babylon or Babel at the time to exist any longer. Their influence was just far too corrupting. And so God himself, much like he does later when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, descends down onto the earth to, to basically sort them out himself. And he does two things. The first, things he do, the first thing that he does to the people of Babel is he changes their what? Anyone know? He changes their language. So from that point forth, they cannot communicate with themselves. They can no longer continue con- to construct this tower. So he changes their language. He destroys essentially that unity and then he does something else. He scatters them abroad the face of the earth. He sorts out the unity issue that they have. He scatters them all abroad the earth. But there's one thing. There's one thing that God couldn't do, and this might sound strange to you, but there is at least one thing that God cannot do, that He is forbidden to do, essentially, by His own character. He can take the people out of Babylon, but He cannot take the Babylon out of the people, at least not by force. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, we're in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 14, just before the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah 14, and we'll see in verse 12. When you're there, just say amen. amen. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. O how thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? Listen to the words of Lucifer. For thou hast said where? in thine heart, that I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like who? I will be like the Most High. Lucifer's position in heaven, according to the book of Ezekiel, he was a covering cherub. He was one of the angels that was the most closest to god and if you have any real imagery of the sanctuary service there were two angels that that leaned over that protected essentially that's what that word covering means they protected the throne of god the throne of god which is founded on his law essentially lucifer was one of the two angels in heaven whose duty it was to protect the throne of god to protect the law of god however he's saying that i will be like the most high he says Essentially, that he can be like God without God. How many of you have heard this before? I don't need the Bible to be good. I don't need a supernatural force in my life to tell me how to live. I can be good. I can do good. I can be righteous without having to go to some old, silly, sacred book. This was the very first claim of Lucifer, that I will be like the Most High. But notice... That Lucifer was not just a walking rebellious megaphone in heaven. This, it says, started where? Look at verse 13. For thou hast said, in his heart, the rebellion of Lucifer started within, and for a long period of time it remained within. When we hear of the war in heaven, oftentimes we think that maybe Lucifer went around to these holy, just, perfect, and righteous angels and said, hey, I want you guys to rebel. I'm thinking that we can be like the Most High without Him. What say ye? And then a third of the angels decide, hey, that doesn't sound too bad. Let's go to war against the giver and sustainer of all things living. I always wonder how that was going to work out. But no, 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 Lucifer said these things where? Where? In his heart, he believed that he could be greater than God. He believed that he could could take the throne. He believed that he could rebel without lasting consequence, but he kept those things inside and insinuated to the angels through slight doubts, through little comments here and there. Hey, you know, I just think think about how beautiful and how perfect you are. Do you really think that you constantly need to be worshipping God to remain in such a state? Just think about it. Get back to me. He keeps these things in his heart. We're told through inspiration that many of the angels didn't even really know which side they should really fall on. Or they hadn't seen the picture completely until Christ himself was crucified on the cross. He kept these things in his heart. That's where the rebellion began. That's even for you and I where rebellion truly begins. It's the promotion of self. self Self-exaltation. We see the beginning of Babel in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, but we actually see the seeds of Babylon right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Lucifer utters the first lie on earth at least, when he says to the woman in verse 4, You shall not surely die. Satan claims and convinces at that time the world population in its entirety that they can be like God, but just without God. He begins to plant the seeds of Babylon in their heart. God took the people out of Babel, but He didn't necessarily take the Babylon out of them. God is forced, essentially, by our choices to resist the pride, and that was the defining characteristic of Lucifer and the defining characteristic of Babylon itself. So, what does it mean to be in Babylon? How do you know whether or not you are in Babylon today? Well, Babylon essentially, according to the Scriptures, is basically the world. Perhaps not physically, but the things that make up the world. All the things of the world, the falsehoods of the world, and the the lies of the world, the religious and political systems of the world that have been set up to counteract God's kingdom. To be in Babylon simply means to be under the dominion and under the power of Satan and by whichever which means he's used to entrap or enslave you. I want you you to imagine this scene. I want you to imagine that there is a building, a, a large skyscraper, and it's on fire. Picture it in your minds. There's lots of people inside the building and the fire breaks out from the ground floor and it begins to rise rapidly. There's many people that are trapped inside, many of them opening the windows and screaming out for help. Their managers are telling them, hey, it's not that serious, you know, the fire brigade is going to be here soon, but before they know it, the fire is raising higher and higher and higher. And so, yes, the firemen come and and, and they announce to everyone, listen, it's time to get out. They try and get out as many survivors as possible, and they get... At least to the very top floor, they hear a few more cries for help. They find some people that are perishing and try to desperately bring them out whilst the building is still standing. And so they take them out and they finally get to the ground floor. They're ushering them out as quickly as possible. And the last lady is out, as she gets to the front door, she looks around and she sees people being reunited with their loved ones, tears strolling down their cheeks, and there might not be anyone for her there at that specific moment, but she turns around and she realizes something. She realizes that the last fireman, the one that helped her get out, he didn't make it out himself. And so she's looking and she starts calling. Look, trying to look through the smoke and, and piercing the flame. She screams, she's like, Are you there? Are you in there? Are you okay? But no response. And so brave as she is, she rushes back inside. And she's there looking around in the lobby area of this building, and she sees this great big grand chair. And it's facing the opposite way, and she thinks, surely not and she rushes around to the other side of the chair and there she sees the fireman sitting down and she's like, what are you doing? And it's almost as if he doesn't even acknowledge her and so she grabs him by the shoulder and she says, hey what are you doing? There's a fire, we need to get out of the building, what are you doing? And he looks at her and he says, hey, it's not that serious. Yeah, there's flames and a few things are being burnt, but it's not that bad. But you, you should leave. You should get out. You need to get out as fast as you can. And she says, well, I'm not, not understanding. How can you be telling me that I, I desperately need to get out? And, and you're still here. You're still sitting down. he says, listen, woman, stop talking to me. You need to leave. You need to leave. Get out. She walks towards the door towards her co-workers that are standing outside and she says, Hey, everyone, listen, listen. It's not that bad. The fireman says that it's not that bad. And if you left some stuff inside, come right back in. We still have time to grab our belongings. We still have time to grab our things and make it out safely. And not too long before they wander back in, the whole building comes crashing down. Why, don't, why am I giving you this analogy? Let me Let me explain. Let me explain, because it makes no sense, listen to me now, it makes no sense to be calling people out of Babylon if you're still sitting inside, are you with me? It makes no sense. The message lacks the power and the oomph that it could have. It makes no sense to be running inside buildings and say, everyone, come out, come out, come out of her, my people. This place is going to come crashing down. It's going to be burnt. Get out as fast as you can if we ourselves are still inside. It's like a glorified game of hide and seek rushing into buildings and telling people, hey, come out, come out wherever you are. There's people in buildings that are on fire. And you and I are rushing in, preaching for them to come out whilst we're sitting on the chairs of those buildings. I read something today that struck me. It said our biggest problem as a church is we just preach to each other and then call it evangelism. We're either screaming, come out, to everyone that's already come out, or we're rushing in telling everyone else that they need to make their way whilst we ourselves are trying to get comfortable. I mean, really and truly, try and wrap yourself around this. A lot of the time when we do these kind of things, we're essentially asking and pleading with people to exit Babylon and come into Laodicea. I mean, is it really worth the jump in their eyes? Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. He also says that other sheep I have that are not of this fold. There's real, actual believers out there. Now, they might not right now be a part of Jesus' actual fold, but they're there. And we come running in and we're like, hey, listen, we've got the truth. Come out of your error and come into the truth. But the world doesn't really care that we have the truth. Because they're looking at us, the ones who have the truth, but they're not really seeing much difference between us and them what use is the truth if it's not actually doing anything what use is the truth if all we've learned to do is just mask our sin instead of surrendering it come out of babylon my people come out but where are we where are we Babylon is not a geographical location. And I don't believe that this church is Babylon, far from it. But I'll tell you what Babylon is in. Babylon is in. Because Babylon is in here. Babylon has made its way into our hearts. The thing is, a lot of the time what we've done with the gospel and what we've done with the three angels message is we've preached the message as if the message is mostly concerned about geographical location. Newsflash, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong building on the wrong day. And so what we do is we bombard people with information, we bombard people with Christless prophecy seminars, and we convince them. And we end up with a church full of people that are very convinced, but very unconverted. And so we have a church that's convinced of truth, like we literally believe that it is actually true, that it is the right message in fact. We just haven't really taken the step to try and live it yet. Glorified hide and seek. Come out, come out wherever you are. You're in, you're in the wrong place. There's a good example in the Bible as to how we can see as clear as day that being in Babylon has very little to do with the actual geographical location have you ever read the story of daniel listen daniel was in babylon right daniel was was so in babylon that he had he had conversations he had audiences with the king I shared this before, but Daniel Daniel was surrounded every single day by Babylonians. He lived literally in Babylon. He attended a Babylonian school. I mean, he worked for the Babylonian government. Daniel, no one was really in in Babylon more than Daniel. But when Babylon came crashing down, when the Medes and the Persians came rushing in overnight and turned the whole kingdom on its head, Daniel was, was so out of Babylon at that time that his position literally remained the same. It's as if they walked in, stormed the whole thing and didn't even see him. He just transferred from kind of being the second or third in command of Babylon to the second or third in command of Medo Persia. He was physically in Babylon, but spiritually, his heart couldn't have been further from it. And so you and I have to ask the question where are we? Geographically, yes, we're out of Babylon, but where are we spiritually? Where, are, where is our heart? Where is our heart? The Bible in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation, the apocalyptic end time book, speaks of a most concerning time, a most concerning message. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, the first angel's message. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. Unto all that were on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue and tribe, saying what? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of living water. And he's followed by another angel saying Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. But look at verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice... If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It's told of a time when earth, when all that are on earth, as it says in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, will either have chosen to worship God and receive his seal or to worship Worship the enemy and receive his mark. To be marked by the beast. You see, what we've done is we've traditionally preached this message and said that, you know, really what we need to do is we need to know what the mark of the beast is so that we don't receive it. Brothers and sisters, I don't think that could be further from the truth. The knowledge of what the mark of the beast is, is going to really have little influence on whether or not you actually get it. How do I know this? Turn with me to the book of Romans. In fact, let's go to the book of Daniel. We'll go to Romans a little bit later. Let's go to the book of Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at the identifying characteristics of this Babylonian message. Daniel chapter 7 and it says in verse 25... Daniel 7, 25, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he, being this papal power, this little horn, he shall think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until times and times, and the dividing of a time. This papal power, this little horn, this antichrist, essentially, as it's mentioned in the Bible, has one real agenda, and that is to change God's law. Are you with me so far? To change God's law. The power of the Antichrist desires to change God's law. Revelation thirteen eight, as I mentioned, says that all who are on the face of the earth, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, they all shall worship the beast. The question is how? How is it that so many are going to accept This anti-Christ message. How is it that so many are going to turn their backs on the law of God? Let's go to the book of Romans now. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. When you're there, just say amen. Romans chapter 8. Look at what it says in verse 5. Romans 8, 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh... But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Flesh and spirit there can essentially be translated into unconverted and converted. For those that are unconverted, they wonder after things that you'd expect from those that are unconverted. But those that are converted, they wonder after spiritual things. It gives this picture that they are in fact polar opposites. You cannot Wonder after both. You either head in one direction or you head in the other. Those that are carnally minded wander after the flesh. Those that are spiritually minded after the spirit. Now look at verse 6. For to be carnally minded is what? Death. But to be spiritually minded is what? Life and peace. The carnal mind offers death. The spiritual mind offers life and peace thrown in there almost as a bonus. Now look at verse 7 because the carnal mind is what enmity against god for it is not subject to the law of god neither indeed can it be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please god the carnal mind the unconverted mind the heart of the person that has not accepted jesus into their life are defined by this they are hostile to god's law they are against God's law. They do not keep or do not see the need of keeping God's law. The antichrist power in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25 is essentially the carnal mind. It is against the keeping of God's law. The only reason why you want to change a law is because you don't like it, right? How many of you would like to change the speed limit, for example? You'd like to perhaps change the speed limit and make it a little bit more, not because you enjoy it, because you are in fact Perhaps not fully yet, but you are in some way, shape, or form against it. You'd like it to be higher. Or maybe you're a little bit more conservative and you'd like it to be lower. But we don't don't desire to change laws that we really like. Are you with me? Satan is against the law of God, and so he wants to change it, as it says in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. But the carnal mind, the unconverted person, naturally, even if they're not conscious of it, are hostile to the law of God. They're already listen to me they're already singing from the same hymn sheet Satan is against the law of God and the carnal mind the unconverted person is also against the law of God The mark of the beast don't miss this now The mark of the beast is a call to worship It's a call to worship and it calls the carnal heart it calls the unconverted one. So it shouldn't be a surprise when we hear of this, this scenario in the last days when a lot of people wonder after the beast. They're already wandering in that direction they just haven't realized yet. And it's not just them, it's not a them against us message. Because many of us think that we're wondering after the spirit, but we are in fact wondering after the flesh. Because geographically, we may be in the right place. We might be paying the right amount of tithe. We might be worshipping on the right day, but our heart still longs after the flesh. For too long, we've preached this message as if it solely depends on which church you attend or which church you're a member of. The mark of the beast calls those that do not have Christ in their life. And this is the mistake that we've made, and I discussed this in the afternoon message today, is that we've taken prophecy and we've made it a mathematics class. We've said that it is merely about the times and the seasons. You just simply have to take 1457 and add 2300 and don't forget to minus out the year zero and then you'll find the right church. Hallelujah, Amen. But if it was that simple then we could just offer those classes everyone would come in Jesus would arrive and we would have graduated our way into heaven. But I think you of I have witnessed even if we have not yet realized that the gospel message is about so much more than that. It's about so much more than the right times. It's about so much more than the right seasons. It's about so much more than the right events. It's about so much more than what's happening in the capital of Rome. The gospel and the three angels' message isn't as much concerned about the papacy as it's concerned about the state of the hearts of those that profess to believe in Jesus Christ. So where is it? Where is your heart? Who really sits on your throne? Who really calls the shots? Because I'll tell you something. When it comes to the final decision that you and, ha- you and I have to make, knowledge isn't going to cut it. Knowledge isn't going to cut it. Should I tell you my my basis for this hypothesis? Matthew chapter 24 from verse 35 onwards. It speaks of a time that it calls the days of Noah. It says as it was in the days of Noah when people were marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking and essentially going about their day that the flood came and the Bible says Jesus said they knew not. But when you read the book of Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7 you see that Noah was a preacher of righteousness or what? a preacher of righteousness. He preached for an entire generation, letting people know that there was, in fact, a flood coming, that there was this righteousness by faith message, that you needed to take the Word of God as it was said. He preached it. And they all knew the information. They all knew the facts, even if they considered it to be a fable. They knew that it was coming. But when Jesus stood before the temple... Jesus said that they knew not. In other words, it wasn't the mere intellectual understanding that a worldwide flood was coming that was actually going to get them into the ark. They heard the message, but Jesus said they still did not know. It's not merely about the information. And there wasn't a flaw with Noah's message either because he preached the message that you and I should be preaching. That there's a worldwide catastrophe coming. He preaches it verbally, but then he, he preaches it physically as he's building the ark, as he shows that he's actually getting ready for the time that is coming. The message was clear, the message was solid, but Jesus says they did not know. The gospel is not merely about imparting the right information on the right timeline. The gospel is about taking those whose hearts are corrupt, Allah, me and you, and changing them into the image of Jesus Christ himself. It's too easy. It's too easy to sit here, to attend a beautiful school and a beautiful campus such as this, and just settle for the fact that apparently we have the truth. Having the truth isn't enough because on that fateful day eyes are going to meet yours and they're going to say hold up what do you mean you had the truth what do you mean you had the truth are you telling me that you knew about this all along are you telling me that it had actually changed you but we just sat in class together and you didn't say anything But there were all of these things happening on campus, you know, about the people that actually knew these things. But but you didn't say anything? You didn't introduce me to the one that means that you're on the inside of these walls whilst I'm on the outside? Having the truth is just having a greater responsibility to share it with those that are in need. How many more restorations are we going to have? How many more of these things are necessary? How many more GYCs and how many more ASIs and all of these wonderful acronyms that we've put together? How many more? You read the Bible and you can tell there's urgency. It wants it to finish. Jesus is desperate that this would all come to an end. It's as if we haven't read the end of the book. It's as if we haven't read that eyes hath not seen, nor hath ears heard. What awaits us? The message to come out of her, my people. Jesus is preaching that message to me. And here's the thing. I already left the geographical location. I was in the literal Babylon, stepped out into the holy grail of the lukewarm atmosphere. And yeah, it's disappointing, but it's still where I need to be. It's still God's movement, might not be moving very much, but we're promised that it will. We're promised that the pace will pick up eventually. But you can't complain if you're in a rowing boat that's not moving, hello? You can't complain if you're just sitting there with the oar in front of you. Who's going to start paddling first? Who's going to get this thing moving? Or are we just going to settle for the still lukewarm waters? The third angel's message to come out of her, my people, is still being preached Even within the Seventh-day Adventist church. Because you and I still have to come out. We still have to lead. We still have to leave. How do we do that? Maybe you're recognizing this evening. You know what? Part of my heart is still in Babylon. Yeah, I'd like to think that it's left. And maybe, maybe there was a time when it did leave. But hey, listen, Babylon never stops calling. Never stops enticing. There was a king of Israel who relocated to Babylon. He left Israel, moved to Babylon for a year. Anyone know his name? His name was David. Oh, you see, he didn't leave Israel geographically. But he left the kingdom. He jumped ship. And he stayed there. Listen to me. He stayed there comfortable in his mess for a year. Until the faithful prophet came and did more than just impart information but allowed the Holy Spirit to use him as a message, as conviction. And you know what happened with David? Come on, you know what happened. You've read it. You've read the psalm. Psalm 51. The psalm of repentance. The psalm of reformation. The psalm of forgiveness. David, having taken another man's wife, And impregnated her when he should have been at war with the rest of his soldiers. Only to then kill that very man and take the wife as his own. An entire year passes before the Holy Spirit is able to gain access to this man's heart. But look at these words. Have mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David is desperate. He's desperate because he knows, he, even though he's in Israel, he's actually in Babylon. And he's seen that, that Nebuchadnezzar sits on the throne of his heart. But he knows. He knows that the power of God can do something dramatic. He knows that the power of God can completely transform his life. So look what he says in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David knew the secret. David knew the secret. David David didn't ask God to give him a new heart. Did you see that? God? David did not ask God to give him a new heart. He didn't come before the Lord and say, wash me thoroughly of mine iniquities, purge me with hyssop. No, no, no. He didn't ask that God would give him a new heart. He said, Lord, create in me a new heart. He specifically pointed to the creative power of God. Lord, I want you to create one. I don't want you to start working on one. No, 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 God. I want one to be created. What's the the importance of this word create? Well, look at Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, verse three. God said, let there be what? Light. Boom, there was light. The moment God said, let there be light, light shone forth. Because God's word has creative power. And God's creative power is instant. There's no time in between God saying, let there be light, and the actual shining. It's instantaneous. When God creates something, He creates something in an instant. And so David looks at his heart. He sees that he's still in Babylon. He sees that he's wholly corrupt, and he's turned away from the Lord. And so he comes back, and he says, God, create one in me. And he believes He believes in an instant change, look at what he says, don't cast me away, watch verse 13, verse 12, restore unto me the joy of salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit, then will I teach transgressors thy way and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David believed that God is going to recreate something in him and immediately now he has a desire to tell others. One of my best friends once told me, Dean, if you fall into sin at 3 p.m., make sure you're up at 3:01. You don't let the devil keep you down. And it doesn't matter how deep that sin is. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. If you fall and recognize that God has creative power, that instantaneously God can change you from a Babylonian to someone that carries the righteous character of Jesus Christ as his own. That's available to you. That's available to you. No Babylonian is going to heaven. There will be no carnal hearts there. And for many of us in our current stage, we're not entering the kingdom. And we can cloud our minds with, with all of the things that make us feel better if we want. We can tell ourselves, listen, I'm at Loma Linda. And listen, I'm going to become a doctor or a dentist or a, or a vet for God's glory. I'm going to do all of these things just for the kingdom. But Jesus says, hey, listen, people come and say, did we not do this and this and this and this in your name? I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It wasn't about the works. It wasn't about where you were or what you've done. It was about who sits in here. I want to finish up with with one last analogy. I was. When was this now? This was maybe about 2012, 2013. It was late one evening, and I was playing football, you know, the, the one with your foot. I was playing football with some friends. It was late, we were playing under a floodlit pitch. And it was raining. Wow, it was raining so hard. I mean, it was England. <laughs> it was freezing cold. And the rain was just pummeling down. And we were there in our tight-fitted shorts, our breathable tops, drenched, soaked right through couldn't stop running because we really needed to stay warm. And the game came to an end. And My friend left and I just needed to catch a bus for about 10 minutes to go home. He needed to catch that same bus for 10 minutes to the train station. Then he was going to get on the train, or the tube as we call it in London, and he was going to have to journey for an hour and a half from northwest London to south London. So he stays on there in his soaking wet football kit. And he's shivering as he's on the tube. An hour and a half and he gets to south London. And essentially the way that the literal ground is made up in south London. They couldn't run tube lines through the ground. So they had trams. They had the over the top um, two, the trains that ran on the ground instead of underneath it. And he was there waiting for his tram. And he looked up at the sign and it said that the tram was coming in 20 minutes. He's standing outside, there's no covering. The rain is coming down even harder than when we were playing football. And he looks up and he sees that the tram is coming in 20 minutes. He's shivering, he's shaking. His fingers are turning blue and he wasn't even white. (laughs) He looks up. There's 19 minutes left and he's like, I don't know what to do. There's no way I'm going to be able to, to stay out here for this long. I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to freeze to death. I'm going to get frostbite or something. And then he has an idea. He looks over at the other platform. And he sees that there's a tram going the other direction and it's arriving in two minutes so he has an idea he knows the area well he's been on the tram hundreds of times he knows every single stop and he thinks to himself well I can just run over to the other side I can get on the tram and I can head in the opposite direction to the way that I'm going to go but I'll be able to get closer to my tram that is coming. And not only that, but I'll be inside. I'll be out of the rain. It's a great idea, really. And so he heads around to the other side of the platform. And he stands there. And as he gets there, the tram pulls up. The doors open. He walks in. They close behind him. And as he's in there, he feels the warmth of the the AC unit, the air conditioning unit just coming down on him. (laughs) He's like, praise the Lord. And he's standing there and, and he sees another unit over a chair that's completely empty. And so he goes over and he sits down and he's there, he's warming up. He's trying off, he's not shivering as much but he's not losing focus you see. He knows that he needs to pay attention and so the tram comes to the first stop and he looks out the window over at the other side of the platform and he sees that the tram that was 20 minutes away is now only 13 minutes away and so he knows that the plan is working. He knows that there's a number of stops ahead and he says, why would I get out and wait another 13 minutes, let me just stay for another stop and so he stays on the Tram, and he gets a little bit closer. The next stop is really close. He looks outside. 11 minutes, and he's happy. He's excited because he's getting warm, and he knows that soon enough he's going to be on his tram, and he's going to be home. But he stays on and he waits for the next one. And then the next one is at nine minutes, and he thinks, "Hey, it's all working out." So he stays for the next one, and the next one is seven minutes, and so he says, "I can, I can definitely afford to stay for one more stop." And so the next one comes, and it's at five minutes, and so he says, "Hey." I know the next one. The next one is literally about 30 seconds down the road. Let me just stay for one more. I'm so close. And so he gets and stays in the train, stays in the seat. He's getting warm and he's approaching the next platform. He's approaching the next stop when the the tram starts to slow down before it actually arrives. Because there's traffic. There's another tram in front that hasn't yet vacated the platform. So he's looking He's trying to look right down to the end of the tracks and he can't see the train coming yet but his heart's starting to beat a little bit faster and he's like, oh man, oh boy, boy I need to, need to get off this tram and so he gets up and he stands next to the doors. I do this all the time. I stand next to the doors knowing full well that they're not going to open just because I'm standing next to them but it comforts me anyways to stand next to them. I don't want to sit down and just wait. Something in my brain tells me if I'm standing next to the door, it might speed up the process but I know that's not really gonna work but he's standing there anyways. He's standing there in front of the doors and he's waiting. You know, he's kind of bouncing. He's a little bit anxious. He's trying to get himself ready because he feels like he might have to run but the train's just not moving and he looks out and he can vaguely see the platform on the other side and it says two minutes and he's like, oh boy. Oh boy. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? He's looking at his watch. He's like, okay. He's getting ready. He's got his bag on him. He's making sure that he's not leaving anything behind and he starts to see some lights in the distance. He starts to see two bright lights in the distance they're really small they're really really small but he notices slowly but surely they start to get a little bit bigger and 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 And this time now he's he's banging on the chair he's banging on the doors and he's like okay come on come on come on we need to move we need to move get this train going come on come on come on come on come on to his delight he feels the engines gear up again and slowly the tram starts to move it's not just zooming onto the platform it's slowly slowly getting to the platform and it starts to pull in as it starts to pull in as it gets right to the point where it's about to come to a dead stop he looks right through the windows and realizes that his tram is right on the other side And so he's there, he's there. We have this this emergency exit button in England. I don't know if you guys have these on your public transport, but you just flip it up, you punch it, the doors open and he sprints through and he was fast and he sprinted. But this one, you had to run down the steps, you had to go through the underpass and you had to come up and he's sprinting, sprinting as fast as he can, almost losing his grip. He runs up the stairs to the other side, takes the corner, he can see his tramp and he's sprinting towards it. And it seems like almost in slow motion that as soon as he gets within touching distance, The door just goes And he's there with his hands And he's trying to squeeze his fingers in Trying to pry the doors open with anything that he can But the train starts to move The tram starts to move And so he's running with it Trying desperately to get in And it picks up speed But he's not giving up And he's trying and he's trying And it's gone He's there at the edge of the platform And his tram is gone He walks back, never feeling so defeated in his life. And he looks up at the platform. He looks up at the little bright information box. And it says, that was the last tram that evening. The next one will arrive promptly at 4.15 a.m. tomorrow morning. And he stands there, speechless, the rain coming down harder than ever before. And he's never been further away from his destination than he is at that time. And he has only one alternative. And that's an eight and a half mile walk home. Listen to me. You cannot head back to Babylon and think that you're going to be able to get off the train on time just because you're aware of the times and the seasons. You're not able to stay, you're not allowed to stay in the warmth and the comfortability of these nice little dressed up, beautiful trains. As comfortable as it may be, and as much time as you may think you have on your side, before you know it, the time to decide will literally be upon you. What are you going to do? Are you going to take the chance? Are you going to stay in Babylon and and hope that the time's going to come where the Holy Spirit will just grab you by the scruff of the neck and throw you through the next train? Or will you do what He should have done at that time? Will you stand? Will you stand for the Lord? Will you stand in the rain and will you stand in the cold? Are you willing to literally almost freeze to death if it means that you can remain faithful to Jesus Christ? If it means that you can keep your heart from wandering back to Babylon? Because that's going to be the temptation every time the train goes past. You're going to look inside and everyone's going to be inside. Everyone's going to be warm. Everyone's going to be comfortable and having the time of your life. But you, you're going to be out there in the cold and it's not going to make a lot of sense to stay out there. To stay in the rain. It's going to hurt, in fact. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because the train back to Babylon never intends to let you out. And it's never going to be more convenient. Because the more you stay there, the warmer it gets. The more comfortable it gets, the nicer it looks inside. What are you going to do then? Going to try and take the easy route? Or are you going to stand for Jesus Christ? Because listen to me. He stood for you. He stood for you when it was inconvenient. He stood for you when he could have just got off and went to the other side. But he stayed there for you. He stayed there for you in the darkness. He stayed there for you in the pain. He stayed there for you and probably every ounce of his being was says, you don't have to go through this. It can be easier for you if you want. But he's like, no, 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 no. It's not going to be easy for them, so I'm not going to let it be easy for me. I'll suffer if I have to. I'll bleed to death if I have to. I'll do it for them in the hope that when the time comes for them to make the choice, that they'll stand for me also. Do you believe in the creative power of God? I ask you, do you believe in the creative power of God? God can change your heart. We've seen it with our own eyes. We've seen Him change other people's lives. Listen, God can change yours. God can change yours. Don't tell me how far gone you've gone. Pick up the Bible. Read about the story of David and see how far he went read about the story of paul who literally killed christians just because they believed in jesus and ended up writing the majority of the new testament read the story of nebuchadnezzar literally the worst man on the face of the planet and tell me that god can't change you tell me that god can't save you tell me that god can't pluck you from babylon's pit and put you on the path to righteousness You might look up, and you might see that the train isn't coming for a while. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how far away it seems. My only prayer is, God, help me to be faithful. God, keep my heart, because I cannot keep it myself. We're all going to make that choice one day. We're all going to choose whether the bright lights and the warmth and the comfort of Babylon is going to win back our heart. Or we're going to choose to stand for Jesus. There's one simple truth. If you want to stand for Jesus on that day, then you have to stand for Jesus today. You can't wait it out. You can't just say when I see the end times coming that then I'm going to get my act together. If you want to stand with Jesus Christ on that great and fateful day, then brothers and sisters, you need to make the choice to stand with Jesus now. What say you? What say you? The path of life and death are opened up before you. Choose ye this day. Choose thee this day whether Jehovah or Baal will be your God. Choose ye this day whether you want eternal life or eternal destruction. Choose ye this day whether you're going to spend eternity walking with your Savior or whether you're going to spit at the foot of the cross. If you want to stand then, you need to choose to stand now. We have appeal cards at the back. I encourage you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart now, if He's speaking to your heart this evening, fill out those cards. Let us know if you need help. Let us know if you need people to pray with you. Let us know if you want to start studying the Bible. Let us know if you want to give your heart to Jesus. Trust me, I've seen it with my own eyes. The people here, they want the best for you. I believe that with my whole heart. If you feel like God is speaking to you, fill them out on the way out. Leave them there. Let the right people follow up. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. I'm not going to say you won't get another chance. You might. You might get many more chances. God is that merciful. But if you hear the Word of God speaking to you today, then don't turn away from it. Trust me and more so trust the Bible when it says that your heart, your car- you can be changed instantly if you would just give this to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would transform us. We've seen you transform the lives of others. We've witnessed these great miraculous testimonies. But, Father, they can be our experience too. They can be truth for us. We can witness that change in our own lives. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith that David had, that you can change us immediately, that you can change us here and now, that you can change us tonight. Father, help us to take your word as it reads. Help us to believe that your hand is not too far. That your ear hears these cries. That, Father, we recognize that though geographically we might be in the right place, we've let our heart go time and time again. Father, I want to recommit to you this evening. I pray that you take my heart, Lord, and toss it away, get rid of it, destroy it, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Bless us as we leave this place, Lord, with your presence, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. This media was brought to you by AudioVerse